a Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 11. We'll look at verses 38 through 44 this morning, and the text is printed here in the bulletin for you on the next page. There are some Bibles available in the back if you need one. This is the last of seven of Jesus' wondrous signs as recorded in John's gospel. I think we've mentioned this before. He, uh, he's performed many signs, many wonders. John makes that explicit, but he only records seven um, as he structures his uh, book for specific reasons. So it's the last one. This is the end of the book of signs, which is sort of the first half of John's gospel. Um, and so uh, in the first sign, which if you remember, uh, it's close to a year ago probably, <laughs> in the first sign, uh, you have him in chapter 2 um, performing a miracle at the wedding at Cana, the wedding feast where they had run out of wine and he made a lot of wine, a lot of good wine out of just water. And, um, and immediately, usually water's involved in the process of winemaking inside the grape, but he, uh, he made it just from water. And, um, and here in, in this last one, the first one and in the last one, sort of as bookends, mention is made of the glory of God. The glory of God is highlighted in the first and the last of the seven signs that John records Jesus performing. So in, in chapter 2, making wine for the wedding feast, it said that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then in our passage, actually uh, the beginning of chapter 11, which we looked at a few weeks ago, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in our passage this morning, Jesus reminds us of this. And he says uh, to, to Martha, because I think what happened was in... Um, Earlier in chapter 11, he was speaking with the messengers that had come from Martha, and he sent them back with this message, this, this illness does not lead to death, it's for the glory of God. And uh, in our passage, he reminds her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? <clears throat> so he reminds us, just as he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So the glory of God is something very important. That may be an understatement. The glory of God is uh, something that, that we can easily be confused about. I think most people, when they, they first hear that phrase, the glory of God, feel something like resentment or some sort of friction inside, right? Um, uh, I think it's a hard thing for us to, to consider, especially because of our distorted ideas about glory and about God himself. Uh, the glory of God is a wonderful thing, and we just usually think of it wrong. Whatever your definition of glory is, sort of speaking abstractly, at this point, whatever um, about glory, uh, everyone would probably agree that glory in general, abstractly, is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Something that would evoke a positive response on our part, something uh, that would evoke a response like appreciation or even delight. Right? That's what glory, uh, we sort of instinctively know that, <clears throat> but glorious things are outstanding things. Glorious things are magnificent and wonderful and impressive things. Right? When we use that language positively about glory, that we're talking about good things. And Jesus said believers would see it. He said believers would see the glory of God on this occasion in Bethany that we're going to read about right now, that the resurrection of Lazarus would point as a sign to the glory of God so that we might see it, so that we might behold it, and presumably then have it affect us positively. 
right? So Jesus wants this. Jesus wants us to see the glory of God in this event, and to see it, he says, you've got to believe it. Sometimes you hear the phrase that seeing is believing, and maybe that's true sometimes. Uh, You can think of like later with Thomas in John's gospel, seeing is believing for him, but here Jesus is saying, believing is seeing. If you believe, you're going to see something here. Believing is seeing, Uh, and without faith, you won't see it. Without faith, you won't see the glory of God in what Jesus is about to do. <clears throat> so, the event is, is long gone. The event happened. It's, it's done. It really happened. It's history. It's in the record books now. Um, and now, with faith, you can look at this event and see the glory of God. And that should be a good thing. And what you should ask, <clears throat> as, as we read the Scripture this morning, which I'm going to do in just a minute, um, you sh- what you should ask as you read the scripture is this which part of this event is the revelation of the glory of God and, and what is the glory of God that I'm supposed to see in this what is it uh, you might actually miss it by assuming you know what you're looking for <laughs> right, so let's pray for God's help that we don't miss it that we'd be able to see the glory of God in what Jesus is about to do uh, let's pray and then we'll read the scripture <clears throat> Father, we would be blind and stumbling in the dark. We would be deaf if it weren't for your Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf. Spiritually, we would not recognize you, and we would not behold and see and delight in your glory apart from your work. So we ask that you would work in our lives right now, work in our hearts, in the heart of every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest. You would work faith in us, that work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit, so that as we read this encounter <clears throat> and we see Jesus Christ as he's presented in the gospel, we would see the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but... I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So did you see it? What did you see? What did you see? What was the most impressive thing to you as we read? It was a pretty short passage. Um, It's pretty obvious, right? Here's a dead man starting to rot in his tomb. And all Jesus does is call his name and he returns to life. Apparently without any symptoms whatsoever of whatever disease it was that had killed him before. 
Jesus didn't lift a finger. He just shouted a few words. That is the language here. He shouted, and boom, resurrection. Right? With a loud cry, he brought forth the dead from his tomb. That's power. That's impressive. That's glorious. Surely that's the very glory of God. That's right there on the face of it, isn't it? I, I wonder why Jesus would say that faith would be required to see that. Why would faith be required to see what was right there in front of all these people, several Jews from Jerusalem, a whole crowd of people? Let's remember that these miracles are signs. That's what John calls them. These miracles that Jesus performs are signs. They're good things in and of themselves. They're remarkable, amazing things that anybody would look at and say, wow. Um, But their real significance, significance, if you will, their real significance is that they point to something. They indicate something. They reveal something deeper about God that faith is necessary to be able to see. You can see this just on the surface of it, and then you can see what Jesus intended by it. Then you can see what it really reveals about God the deeper thing that it's pointing to as a sign. In this case, with the resurrection of Lazarus, in the actions themselves, what we're seeing is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He, he raised a dead man to life. This guy had been dead four days. That doesn't just happen. That's what happened. <clears throat> but what that means, what that signifies, what these actions that Jesus performs, what it means, the glory of God that it reveals to those who look with the eyes of faith, is much greater than than Lazarus's cells buzzing again and reanimation of his his body. It's a a bigger deal than that. It's really important for us to have a conception, I think, of the glory of God that comes from the scriptures themselves. Talking about the glory of God, we need to know what it means, the way the Bible talks about it. That is the way that God talks about it. Because that's what is being revealed here in, in this wondrous sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, the glory of God. So what is that? What is the glory of God? What does that word mean according to the scriptures? We tend to think of glory, I think, this is pretty common for us, especially in our culture, we tend to think of glory as the accidental as, as opposed to essential, right? The, you have the essence of a thing and then you have the accidents of the thing, the peripheral aspects of it. Uh, things that um, aren't really necessary to the the thing itself. It's accidental, it's peripheral, maybe it's even superficial, like a glow, like a glow, right? Like uh, the beauty that's only skin deep. That's that's glory, right? A shiny luster that might dim with age or wear off. Olympic sport champions achieve this kind of glory when they get a big gold heavy medallion, right? But glory in the Bible isn't just something shiny. It's not something just fancy and, and flashy, like a nice polished trophy on the mantle that might pique momentary interest and evoke some oohs and ahs, but then becomes old hat or ceases to exist altogether when people just aren't thinking about it and just forget about the old glory days, right? In the Bible, especially in John's gospel, John has a lot to say about glory, and we'll come back to it as we go through his gospel further. Glory is eternal. That is, it's not just a feature of things God has made. 
Um, it's eternal and it's evergreen. It never fades because the glory of God is intrinsic to God's very being. It's not just some shiny aura or glow that comes off of him. Glory in the scripture has to do with who he really is, who God really is. Tim Keller asks the question, what is glory? He says, it's the brilliant, infinite, greatness, beauty, power, and presence of God. And Rodney Whitaker, who's a commentator in, uh, on John's gospel, he says <clears throat> that glory refers to the revelation of God in all his beauty of being and character. Glory is a manifestation of God himself. God himself. So glory is not accidental to who God is or peripheral to who God is, or it's not just a show, or the, it's not just some way that we respond to him. Glory is his essence. Glory is his substance. Glory is his being, which is manifested to us for our apprehension of it. Um, it's, it's God coming to someone. That's God's glory. And that's eternal. It's, it's really what the Hebrew and the Greek words both mean for glory. The, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew for the most part. The New Testament written in Greek. And the words there in their respective languages that, uh, that are translated glory in our English scriptures, they really do mean the substance of a thing. The substance substance that may be directed, the substance that is in motion, the substance that comes to, right? It's, um, and so Paul pray, I mean, uh, sorry, David prays in uh, Psalm 16. He says, my whole being rejoices, and it's that word glory. It's my whole glory rejoices. Everything within me is responding to who God is, and that's my glory, but the substance of who I am, my being. So, the glory of God, then, is the being of God. It's the very being of God. We could get a lot more nuanced with this, and you're welcome to sort of geek out about it in sermon discussion later with me. The glory of God is, is his innermost reality which is made known to us. It's his innermost being made known to us. So in the Bible, the glory of God is it's who he is at the very core as he's made known to us, as he's manifested and revealed himself to us. So uh, that's something that Jesus Christ reveals to our faith. He reveals it through this very encounter, in this wondrous sign at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, uh, it says in verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So a reminder from last week, because it says he was deeply moved again, just a few verses before this, uh, he, was, he was moved within himself to anger at death. He was not angry at the people there. He was angry at death, at the reality of death and all the implications and all the sources of it. It's his enemy. He's the resurrection and the life, and so death is his arch enemy, his nemesis. And he was moved within himself to anger at death. And his anger and his tears and Christ's very lament to God on our behalf reveals the heart of God to us, shows us what God is really like. And that lament acts to restore our humanity for us. He did lamenting right on our behalf in solidarity with us because he loves us. 
So John Calvin said that Christ, as he comes now in, in this verse to the tomb, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. Now he can see it. And he's moved within himself. He's here to do something about death. And not just the death of his friend Lazarus. Not just the death of his friend Lazarus who was in that tomb on that day. Remember, it's a sign. Especially of Jesus' cosmic battle on behalf of all of his people, his cosmic battle with death itself. As we'll see next week in the response of the Jewish leaders, the response of the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, this event with Lazarus would precipitate Jesus' own death and resurrection. It leads immediately into it, really, uh, which, which would mean the salvation of the world. Jesus conquering death for everyone. <clears throat> and this is all something that, that is internal to Jesus. It's something that he wants to do. He's moved within himself. This is who he is. He's moved internally. He, this is the very reason he came into the world. And he wouldn't have come into the world if he didn't want to showdown with death on our behalf. That says something about who he is. That shows us what God is really like. That shows us the glory of God. That shows us God at his core made known to us, revealed to us, because Jesus is himself God in the flesh. And when, when God in the flesh came to his friend's tomb, which was a cave covered with a stone, and that language I think is clearly meant to bring to mind those who have read through John's gospel more than once, um, clearly meant to bring to mind his own tomb, which was a a freshly carved cave covered with a stone, right? So, when God in the flesh came to his friend's tomb, he came ready to do battle. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. So she resists, she, uh, she objects, she protests, right? And, and John Calvin again says that Martha's objection is an indication of distrust, unbelief. She doesn't, she doesn't have faith. She doesn't, she doesn't trust him. That much is clearly implied in the next verse when Jesus corrects her and says you should have faith, right? Um, but her protest is understandable. It's totally understandable. If you were there... The entire world of her experience sort of coalesced in certain assumptions that really are unquestionable assumptions about the world, about the way the world works. There is such a thing as death, obviously, and people who have been dead for four days without some sort of embalming process, they, they smell bad. And that's not just unpleasant. That's not just something that you just hold your nose and sort of power through it. That's your brother who smells bad because he's dead. That's, that's deeply distressing. That's deeply distressing. Death is the inescapable reality that I cannot bear to be confronted with. Please don't open that tomb. 
But death is not the ultimate reality. Death is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is standing right there telling them to open the tomb. He's the ultimate reality. And it's a command that uh, it wouldn't make much sense to anybody but him. <laughs> really. What's he going to do? Why, why open the tomb? But it's a command that reveals the glory of God because he's there to do something about the problem that has no solution. This problem has no solution. And he's there to do something about it. Death can't stop him. And neither does Martha's unbelief. Martha's unbelief doesn't stop Jesus either. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing, Martha. I want you to see something here. He's not saying, we should get this in our minds very firmly. This is not how God works. He is not saying, if you would just believe, if you just have greater faith, I would do something good for you. I'd raise your brother from the dead. That's not how God works. Jesus came to do what he came to do, and he was going to do it, and nothing would stop him. A whole unbelieving world wouldn't stop him from doing what he, was, what he came to do. No, he was saying, if you believe, you'll see something in what I'm about to do. You'll see something in my actions. You'll be able to perceive the glory of God in what I'm about to do. The core of who God is will be made known to you if you believe. And that's what he really wants. He wants Martha's faith and he wants yours for your sake. He wants you to believe for your sake so that you can behold the glory of God in him, so that you can know what God is really like. <clears throat> and here it is. So they took away the stone a pretty good response to Jesus. When he says, take away the stone, you take away the stone. <clears throat> and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So here it is. If you've got your faith vision on, <laughs> Jesus prayed. That's the glory of God. Jesus prayed. It's the glory of God, and there's nothing more revealing about God. There's nothing truer to be said of God. There's nothing more wonderful to be said of God than that, that Jesus prayed. Jesus isn't a self-sufficient, independent superman. You're not. You're not supposed to be. But he's not. Not even Jesus himself. Here's a great insight. The miracles that he does, he doesn't do from his own power. He does them in the power of the Holy Spirit and apparently in prayer. He asks the Father and the Father gives him these things. He said that before in John's Gospel. The Father's given him many good works to do. He asks and he receives and he's thankful for everything. That's Jesus. Jesus is utterly dependent on his Father for life, both as a finite created human being 
And, and what this reveals about God is that the eternally begotten Son of God is also dependent for his life to receive it and everything from his Father. That's what it means to be God. Jesus reveals God, and he reveals God to be a God of conversation, a God who prays, strange as that might sound, a God whose very being whose very glory is love. The God that Jesus reveals is the Trinity. And every action of this God, everything God has ever done, has been a collaboration. And it's been a concert. And there's been perfect harmony. So the God Jesus reveals here is a trinity, and that's his glory. Because this God doesn't just love himself. This God loves even rebellious sinners who brought death into his world through their unbelief. Because what does Jesus want? What does he pray for? His prayer to the Father is for the resurrection of his friend the one that he loves, that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. It's a prayer of confident thanksgiving because he's in perfect relationship with his father. And it's a prayer for our faith that we would trust him and see his glory. That's what he prays for. That's what he says out loud as he's talking with his father, that the people who see this would know and they would believe that the father sent Jesus into the world to do stuff like this. Jesus' relationship with the Father, it's the source of the miracle. It's the source of Lazarus' resurrection and life. His prayer to the Father is the big deal here in this passage. Jesus' relationship with the Father, then, is it's not just the source of Lazarus' resurrection and Lazarus' life, which is great, but it would run out again. He would expire again. He didn't become immortal. He wasn't in a glorified resurrection body. His resurrection is different from the resurrection Jesus would undergo. Um, but Jesus' relationship with the Father, more, more than about the, the, being the source of this sign, Jesus' relationship with the Father is the reason Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf to atone for our sins. And it's the reason that he's raised from the dead on our behalf with everlasting life in his hand. Jesus' relationship with the Father is the source and it's the guarantee of our resurrection and our life. And that's the glory of God, which he wants us to know. This is what kind of God he is. This is what he's doing in the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is good news for people like us. He's the God who raises sinners from the dead. For life with him that we didn't deserve, we didn't really even want it. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his love toward people like us. He's declared himself to you for your life as surely as he shouted into that cave and brought Lazarus out alive. And there's no greater testimony to his glory than this. Humanity ruined itself. We ruined ourselves. That's what humanity version 1.0. Right? 
ruined itself, but in Jesus Christ, a human would be the Savior. Get your mind around that. In taking a human nature to himself, this is God the Son, the eternal God, taking a human nature to himself in the, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man, it's not just God that saves us. It's a human being who saves us, taking a human nature to himself. He gives humanity, which we ruined. He gives humanity this privilege. He shares the glory of being our Savior with humanity because our Savior is a human being. Irenaeus, church father from a long, long time ago, <clears throat> said, uh, said that life in man is the glory of God. Life in man is the glory of God. God himself is our Savior. And this God is also now a human being, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gives life to all those who trust in him. <clears throat> He's exalted our humanity to the highest place, that of Savior and Lord of all. That's where he took our humanity. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Literally, it is that he roared. Lazarus, come out. So that reminds me of um, Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones, which Jennifer read, our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel chapter 37. It's, it's wonderful. God brought the Son of Man, who's Ezekiel in Ezekiel's prophecy. It's, it's the prophet. He's a dude. He's a guy. He's a human being, right? But his, his name there is the Son of Man. That's what God always calls him. And that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. He's a human being. And God brought him in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in his own power, not in and of himself, but in the Spirit, to the place of the dead, which Jesus reveals is this whole world apart from him. The whole world is the valley of dry bones. God brought the Son of Man to the place of the dead in the power of the Spirit, and he told the Son of Man, you tell the dead that I, God, will raise you from the dead. I'll cause you to live so that you'll know me, so that you'll know that I'm the Lord. You'll know what I'm really like. So the Son of Man said exactly what God wanted him to say. He spoke to the dry bones, and the dead started coming back to life. But then God told this man to command the breath, which in Hebrew, that word breath and wind and spirit, that's all the same word. It's translated different ways for us in English, but it's the same word. God told the man, the son of man, you command the Holy Spirit. You tell God, you tell the Holy Spirit to enter into these dry bones and they'll live. Imagine that, a human being whose very word not only begins to resurrect the dead to life, but his very word commands the Holy Spirit so that the dead are raised to life. The Spirit entered the dead and resurrected them, and that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what God has done for us in the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man. In Jesus Christ, God himself and a human being has commanded the dead to life. He's sent forth the Holy Spirit to 
revivify us. That is, the way we experience this now, as we look forward to the resurrection of the dead, when, when our, our souls and our bodies will be reunited in glory, never to sin again, always to live in God's presence forever. That's what we look forward to. But now there's this vivifying, this, this resurrection that takes place, this renewal that takes place in us with regard to our relationship to God. We come alive to God, the Scripture says, because of Jesus sending his spirit, sending God's spirit to us. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he's alive, we're made alive to God. Now, Romans 6. And we will be resurrected to everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. All of this, all of this, so that you would know that the Father sent Jesus. So that you would believe him so that you would trust him, so that you would see the glory of God, you would see what God is really like as he's made himself known to you. Do you see it? Do you see the glory of God? You don't have to strain to see it, like peering into the impenetrable darkness. You can see the glory of God when you look at Jesus Christ with faith, at this man who reveals God to us, because he is God. He's the God who would go so far even as to become a man, who would resurrect sinful humanity through humanity itself, because he's gracious. That's what kind of God he is. It might be a strange glory to you, but believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, we come to you, and really our only recourse is prayer, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that you would help us to see you and behold you as you truly are, that you would reveal yourself to us in the gospel, and that means granting us faith so that we would trust who you've said that you are, trust who you've revealed yourself to be through Jesus Christ, that we would see God and man united for our life, for our resurrection, even for our sharing your glory with you, that we would see all of this in who Jesus is and what he's done, that everything that he's done is pointed to this very thing, that you are who you say you are. If only we would trust you and believe it, then we would see it. So we pray for your help because um, we can't muster up this faith on our own, and none of us have perfect faith, so we pray that you would grant us faith where it doesn't exist and increase our faith. Help us to grow in our faith. We believe. We we pray that you would help our unbelief as we look to Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.